As I mentioned, we have a special guest, and I've said this many times with our other guests that, we've had, that have come. The Lord Jesus Christ loves his church, and he loves Evergreen Church specifically well. And, and part of the reason why we know this is this, how he's bringing so many gifts from outside the church to come support us and encourage us. Pastor Mark Dever has been a particular encouragement to me. He's taken his time and his effort to uh, show his love to me, in effect, showing love to Evergreen Church. He's been a particular encouragement to Sharla and the children as they've seen an uh, established pastor come alongside a young pastor. And he sacrificially, lovingly has come to serve us today. So I just want to introduce our friend, Mark Dever, and invite him up here. Let's give him a warm, evergreen welcome. Thanks, man. Thank you, Rocky. It's good to be with you, brothers and sisters. Uh, my phone was blown up about three hours ago because our pastor, Bobby, back at our church on Capitol Hill, was praying specifically for Evergreen Church this morning and for this meeting. So I bring you greetings from the Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. If you ever see a news report and you see the Supreme Court, perhaps on the news this week, uh, or the Capitol Dome, we're four blocks uh, just to the east of that directly. We've been there almost 150 years, uh, not me personally. Uh, perhaps some of the members when I came, but that's another story. Uh, I've been pastoring that church for 28 years, and by God's grace, uh, we have seen much of his goodness to us. It's good to be with you. What I'm going to do this morning is not what I normally do when I preach back in D.C. Lord willing, next Lord's Day, this coming Sunday, I'm back in my pulpit, back in Washington, preaching through the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8. But this morning, I wanted to take opportunity on Father's Day to speak to you specifically about the role of the pastor of the church. Now, that seemed an appropriate thing on Father's Day, and what the pastor's job is, which is basically to preach, pray, love, and stay. That's what's going to be said today. Preach, pray, love, and stay. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. Let's look at the first few verses there. 1 Peter chapter 5, the first few verses. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, many of you have read this passage, no doubt. Uh, as we meditate on it, we understand more of what it means to be a pastor. We feel the weight of it. Uh, we see something of how to do it. All of these matters interest us. Now, there are hundreds of people here this morning. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to tell you that I think you've picked a particularly good Sunday to be at church. Uh, maybe you've come to honor your dad. Uh, you just agreed to come with him today. Well, on behalf of this dear congregation, let me welcome you. 
Uh, you're welcome here every Sunday when uh, the congregation gathers. And it's a particularly good Sunday to come if you're not a Christian, because I think when we talk about what the pastor does, that's going to be a fast way into understanding with unusual clarity uh, to get a taste of what it means to follow Christ. Because a pastor should be an example of that. Uh, We see that there is a God and that in His goodness He made us. He made us to know Him. Uh, We see that all of us have sinned. That is, we've done what we should not do. We've turned aside. We have done what we would rather do rather than what God wants us to do. And God, in His goodness, would be perfectly just merely to judge us. But that's not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is that God has made Himself our Heavenly Father, not merely by creation, but by recreating, by redeeming us by sending His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, lived a fully human life, and died on the cross, though He did not need to die in the place of all of us who would ever turn and trust in Him, paying the sacrifice for our sins, bearing God's justice that we had sinned against. God, in His great mercy and His triumphant grace, raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus ascended to heaven and presented His sacrifice to His heavenly Father. And God calls all of us now to turn from our sins and trust in Him. If you want to know more about what this good news is in your own life, just talk to the person you've come with. Uh, find Pastor Rocky after the service or one of the other pastors here. Uh, This subject that I want to speak about this morning is at the very center of a Christian church. It's it's, it's the ministry. And it particularly interests Christians. I mean, anything that gives us examples of how to follow our Lord Jesus Christ, and we understand pastors are to be examples, that helps us. And if we're really Christians, we covet to follow Jesus. Uh, We want to set our footsteps where our Lord has set His. We want to be His disciple and follow after Him. And we are anxious to get anything that will help us do that. Even more, though, than merely Christians, our topic is of interest to church members. Of course, normally all Christians will be members of a local gospel-preaching church near them. They will meet together regularly with these brothers and sisters for edification and encouragement. But we know that today some have been poorly taught on this. They don't know they're to do it, though something inside them tells them of their need for it. Others have knowingly, sinfully neglected it. But normally, for the most part, Christians know they're to be members of the church, and they are. And for church members, few topics could be more significant than what those who lead them are commanded by God's Word to do, to do for God's glory and to do for the good of the church. Uh, Surely all members have a great interest in knowing what God's Word tells you about the one who is to lead you, what he is to be like, what he is to aspire to. So brothers and sisters, it's good for you to know your pastor's job description and to hold him accountable, uh, to encourage him, to provide for him and pray for him, to assist him in fulfilling it. And finally, even when the time comes, to replace him. You can't do that well if you don't know what the Bible says he's supposed to do. Now, one member that this topic 
of the pastor's job is of special significance to is the pastor's wife. So, Charlotte, you are called to co-labor along with Rocky. God has made you to suit him. Uh, You've known him ever since undergrad days. As you were just telling me earlier, you had the same major. The Lord was preparing you for this to be fruitful alongside him. So it's not just Rocky or Evergreen Church. It's God who has called you to do this. God has called you alongside Rocky, and he has given you the unique role of the chief care of the pastor of this congregation. That would be your unique role here. Finally, you are to assist him, and you are to pray that God strengthen you in order to do this and to bless you through your ministry to Rocky. We trust him to do that. I trust he's already done that in the years you've been here. Of course, this passage, you'll notice there, if you look in chapter 5, verse 1, it's written to the elders among you. That's in the plural. So we know from elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, like the letter to James or Acts chapter 20 or Titus chapter 1, that it was typical for churches to have a number of men serving as their elders, their pastors. And I know that this dear congregation has been blessed by God with a number of men who serve you as pastors on staff of the church. So all pastors can clearly learn from Peter's words here. But this passage most interests the main teaching pastor, even more than anyone else, because practically this charge falls on you, Rocky. And that's what Peter is talking about. Your leadership of the other pastors, by counsel and prayer, by training and time, your leadership of this congregation has much to do with the prosperity of your fellow pastors and of your congregation. You have felt called by God and your congregation has agreed to make your work, your job, the teaching of God's Word to this Baptist church. This is your full-time job as you pastor this dear congregation. So you bear a unique responsibility. You have unique opportunities in this. As you teach the church from week to week, this is your special burden. So I want us in this time together this morning to consider some of the practical faithfulnesses that pastors especially are called to because in learning this one central role, we learn more about what the church as a whole is to value, is to care about, how it's to function. But before we do that, let's make sure we notice the most important thing in our passage. It's there in verse 4. Peter writes of Jesus Christ as the chief shepherd. He is the good shepherd. He will never need to be replaced. You'll never need to find another chief shepherd. The under shepherds like Rocky or me may come and go, but the chief shepherd is always in place caring for his sheep. So brother pastors here in this church, uh, take hope from verse 4 that When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. How do you get that unfading crown of glory? Well, a good pastor faithfully cares for the sheep under his care. That's what we're called to do. So to that end, in our time together, I want to simply share with you some reflections on four crucial aspects of the ministry. Four crucial aspects of the ministry that God has called this church to and especially 
the pastors of this church, and especially, Rocky, you. Number one, preaching. When I first interviewed with the pulpit committee at our church in Washington, I said that I was happy to see every aspect of my public ministry fail if it needed to, except for the preaching of God's Word. Now, what kind of thing was that for a young potential pastor to say to a pulpit search committee? Is that, is that a wise thing to do? Well, what I wanted to get across was that there is one main thing that is biblically necessary for building the church, and that is the preached Word of God. And that I was willing to take that responsibility under God. Others could do everything else, but I was especially responsible and set apart by the congregation for the public preaching of God's Word. God's Word has always been His chosen instrument to create, convict, convert, conform His people. Uh, God's Word is used by God to create faith. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, when you receive the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. The Word performs God's work in believers. The very famous verse, Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Friends, it's God's Word that gives us new birth. Uh, James tells us in chapter 1, in humility receive the Word implanted, which is able to save your souls. The Word saves us. Peter also claims regenerating power for God's Word in, earlier in 1 Peter in chapter 1, where he says, For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. And this is the Word which was preached to you. So friends, there is creating, conforming, life-giving power in God's Word. The gospel is God's way of giving life to dead sinners like we see illustrated in the vision of the valley of the dry bones, you know, in Ezekiel 37. This is how God creates new churches, through the preaching of His Word. God doesn't have another way. This is the way He has chosen. So if you want to see Evergreen Baptist Church progress in health and holiness, you must seek to do it according to God's revealed mode of operation. Otherwise, you risk running in vain. God's Word is His supernatural power for accomplishing his supernatural work. And that's why Rocky's eloquence or his innovations or programs you have here at church are so much less important than you may think. That's why we pastors must give ourselves to preaching God's Word. That's why we need to be teaching our congregations to prefer God's Word even over favored programs at church. Preaching the content and intent of God's Word is what God uses to build His church. God's Word builds His church. So preaching His gospel is primary. Uh, I think of this, uh, the other day I was in Isaiah. Go back to, uh, turn over to Isaiah chapter 8 and notice this. The Lord is speaking through Isaiah the prophet to His people. When they're tempted to run off and worship other gods, rely on other gods, and He says, in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums, the psychics, 
the necromancers, the fortune tellers, who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. He's telling the people of Israel, don't go seeking the truth among those which are not God. You have the real, the living, the true God among you. Turn to his word. So one thing, very practically, that means for you, Rocky, is that you have to give yourself to the study of God's Word. We who are called to be ministers of God's Word must give ourselves to faithfully read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the Holy Scriptures and such studies as help us to know and understand them better. You remember what Paul said to Timothy. Preach the Word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So, church members, why aren't I just saying this to Rocky in a meeting alone with him? Or why aren't I just saying this in a meeting of the pastoral staff of the church? Because you have a job here. Your job is to understand what I'm saying. You are responsible to require your pastor to give himself to the preaching of the Word. I was sharing with one person earlier from 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul warns about the false teachers that were going to come in Ephesus. And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 3, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So you can think the church down the road that begins to not believe God's word because of an unfaithful ministry, that the problem is the minister and the bad preaching. And you're part right. James 3, 1 tells us there will be extra judgment for those who teach God's word. But oh, pew dweller, chair sitter, church member, you have gravely misunderstood matters if you don't realize that if Rocky is a bad pastor, it is your fault. You pay him. You bear responsibility, 2 Timothy 4, 3. The congregation is the one who calls the pastor. And if there is an unfaithful ministry, yes, there's an accounting to be given to God by the one who ministers, but there is accounting to be given to God by all the members of the church. Far in the north of Scotland lies the little village of Kiltern. They once had a very faithful minister there. And when he died, they buried him in the church building with a memorial stone across the threshold of the church that everyone would have to pass over as they went into the church. And it said on this gravestone, this stone shall bear witness against the parishioners of Kiltern if they bring an ungodly minister in here. Well, that's a very direct way to do it. But friends, that little church up in the north of Scotland understood the work they had. And that minister, as his very last request, left a faithful witness that every member had to go across each Lord's Day when they gathered. They had a responsibility. So addressing the health of the pastorate is one of the most fundamental and central ways to address the health of a local church. And the most healthy thing that a pastor can do is to realize that he must preach God's Word. Rocky, preach God's Word. 
brothers and sisters, make sure Rocky is spending his time preparing to preach to you God's Word. Number two, prayer. Number two, prayer. Rocky, in your personal life, pray. In your home life, pray. In your meetings with others, pray. In your pastor's meetings and staff meetings and members' meetings with the whole church, pray. In your public services, devote so much time to prayer that nominal Christians are bored by talking to the God they only pretend to know. You want the services at Evergreen Baptist Church to attract real Christians and hungry non-Christians. Do not worry about the nominal Christians. There are plenty of churches for them. Diligently call upon God by prayer for the true understanding of His Word so that you may be able by the Scriptures to teach and exhort with wholesome doctrine and to withstand and convince those who oppose the truth. Prayer shows our dependence upon God. Every time we stop and pray, we show that we know the answer is not in ourselves, but in the God that we go to. It honors Him as the source of all blessing, and it reminds us that converting individuals and growing churches are His works, not ours. Jesus reassures us that if we abide in Him as His words abide in us, that we can ask anything according to His will, and we can know that He will give it to us. What a promise. Okay, so, so what should you pray for? Well, there are countless things we could pray for. Uh, let me suggest five here, just as examples for you. Five things you can pray for. One, what more appropriate prayers could a pastor pray for the church he serves than the prayers that Paul prayed for the churches that he planted? So go look in the early chapters of Paul's letters. Find those three or four verse prayers that he shared with the Christians. He was praying for them. So Rocky, instruct your church members that one of the most important ministries they can have is praying for you. Number two, pray that your preaching of the gospel would be faithful and accurate and clear. Number three, pray for the increasing maturity of the congregation, uh, that Evergreen Baptist would grow in corporate love and holiness and sound doctrine, such that the testimony of the church and the community would be distinctively pure and attractive to unbelievers. Four, pray for sinners to be converted and the church to be built up through your preaching of the gospel. Five, pray for opportunities for you to do personal evangelism. So many more things you could pray about, but there's just five to give you an example of the kind of prayers you could be regularly praying. Pray about such matters in your services. Advertise that you depend upon God. And do pray personally. Uh, One of the most practical things you can do for your own personal prayer life and for the prayer lives of other church members is to assume, uh, is to assemble a church membership directory. I always say my two most important books I always have with me, my most important book is my Bible, and my second most important book is my church membership directory. Here are listed the members of the Capitol Hill Baptist Church. So I understand from Hebrews 13 that I will give a special accounting for these people. So here I have a picture, their contact information, and every morning in my quiet time, I pray through two pages of this so every month I can get through the entire membership. And we encourage all of the elders and pastors at our church, and for that matter, all the members of our church, 
to take one of these directories and to pray through. As you pray for these people, of course, your prayers don't have to be long, just biblical. Uh, Just take one or two phrases that you're praying for yourself from the Scriptures for that day, and then pray for them a meaningful sentence or two, along with whatever things you know are going on in that specific individual's life at present. Pray for them particularly. And those that you don't know well yet, simply pray what you're praying for yourself in your daily Bible reading. Model this kind of praying for others and encouraging the congregation to join you in that. That can be a powerful influence for the growth of the church. It encourages a kind of selflessness in people's individual prayer lives. And one of the most important benefits is that it helps to cultivate a corporate culture of prayer that can characterize your church as people are faithful to pray. So give yourself in prayer. Number three, personal discipling relationships. Personal discipling relationships. So Rocky, one of the most biblical and valuable uses of your time as the pastor of Evergreen Baptist Church SGV is to cultivate personal discipling relationships in which you're regularly meeting with people one-on-one to do them good spiritually. Now, I don't need to say much about this. Uh, Rocky, you and Sharla know this. Uh, I know from from Jeremy and Melanie. Uh, I know from Armand. Uh, I know from others. So, church members, you hurt yourself when you discourage your pastor from having personal friends. He needs them. And as he ministers to them, they will be blessed. And in turn, the whole congregation will be blessed. So pray against any tendencies to jealousy and gossip in this regard, especially if this congregation continues to grow. And members, join with your pastor in this ministry. Have meals with others. As you get to know them, you might suggest uh, read a book for the two of you together and discuss it uh, every week or every other week and, and use it as a bridge to, to get into someone else's life and find out more about what's going on so that you can talk with them about it and encourage them and, and correct them if you need to and be accountable to them. Let them know what's going on in your life and pray with them. Uh, whether or not you ever tell that other person that you're discipling them is immaterial. That doesn't matter. What matters is that you want to do them good spiritually. That's the way you're to love one another. So initiate this personal care and concern for others. So this practice of personal discipling is helpful on a number of fronts. I mean, it's obviously a good thing in and of itself for the person being discipled because they're getting biblical courage, encouragement and advice. Uh, in this way, discipling can function as another channel through which the Word of God can flow into the hearts of the members and be worked out in the context of personal fellowship. It's a good thing for the one who disciples as well, whether you're the main preaching pastor or another pastor or some other member, because it encourages you to think about discipling not as something that only super-Christians do, but as something that's part and parcel of your own discipleship, as your own following of Christ. So Evergreen Baptist, your members need to know that spiritual maturity is not simply about your own personal quiet times, but about your love for other believers and your expression of that love. A healthy byproduct for non-staff members discipling other members is that it grows a culture of distinctively Christian community in which people are loving one another, not simply as the world loves, 
but as followers of Christ who are together seeking to understand and to love and work out the implication of God's Word in our lives together. These kinds of relationships help both spiritual and numerical growth. Pastors on staff here, another healthy byproduct of your personal discipling of other members is that it helps to break down any defensive resistance to your pastoral leadership that may grow up. As you open up your life to others, as they see that you are genuinely concerned for their welfare and their spiritual growth, they'll be more likely to see you as a spiritually caring friend, a spiritual mentor, a godly leader. Developing these kinds of relationships would be like Paul did with the Thessalonians, where he was like a nursing mother to them, uh, careful and commanding them like a loving father. You build personal trust in your character and motives. You grow an appropriate level of confidence in your leadership among the congregation. And just a word to the congregation here. I remember Jeremy McLean, who was an elder in our congregation once, listening to some visitors at our church talk about what wonderful elders, what wonderful pastors we had at our church. And Jeremy very typically wisely listened humbly and then said, well, you do want to have wise elders in a church, wise shepherds, but you also need members who want to be shepherded. And that's true. One of the great blessings in our congregation is the Lord has given us a congregation full of people who in humility and expectant joy want to be shepherded. That kind of shepherding is encouraged through personal discipling relationships. So, so Rocky and, and all you church members here, give yourselves to doing each other good spiritually. Number four, patience. When I arrived at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, I waited three months before I preached my first Sunday morning sermon. At my request, the congregation very kindly allowed me simply to attend. I had asked for that time in conversations that were held before I arrived. When I explained my reasons, they agreed. I was intending simply to show respect for the congregation. It gave me time to learn what they were accustomed to. It showed them that I wasn't in any hurry to change anything. Now, not all of us have the luxury of of waiting three months to preach after our arrival, but we can all study the congregation that God has called us to and so that we live with them in an understanding way, just like you should be living with your wife, husband, in an understanding way. We pastors indeed are, as the Bible tells us, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. So if Rocky is not reproving, rebuking, and exhorting, he's not obeying the Bible. But you'll notice in 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, it says we are to do it with great patience and instruction. That's how we do that. So, Brother Rocky, make sure that the directions the church has begun going in are biblical. Or, if it's more specific than the Bible talks about, at least prudent, wise. Then patiently teach the people from God's Word before you expect them to embrace the changes. Don't lead with change. Lead with teaching. The patient instruction like Paul exhorts Timothy to here, is the biblical way to sow broad agreement with a biblical agenda among the flock of God. Once this broad agreement is sown, initiatives are less likely to be divisive and unity less prone to fracture. Work to extend genuine Christian goodwill 
to people. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. The Lord's bondservant, that's you and me, brother. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Paul wouldn't have had to say that if we were never tempted to impatience. Sheep bite. You can't put up with sheep bites. Get out of the shepherding business. We're shepherds because we love the sheep. And we want to patiently instruct them, regardless of how many times they bite. The key to displaying and actually having this kind of patience is, I think, to have a right perspective on time, eternity, and success. These three things. So, Troy, these would be three subpoints of point number four. Three subpoints. Number one, time. Most of us, I think, think only about five or, or ten years down the road, if that. But patience in the pastorate requires things in terms of 20, 30, or even more. I remember a number of years ago uh, being up at Grace to You in Santa Clarita and interviewing John MacArthur when he was celebrating at that time his 40th year in, in ministry at Grace Community Church. And as John was in that interview looking back over decades of faithful pastoral ministry, he remembered that in his fifth year, uh, he saw tumult and division among the leadership. You can actually find this interview and listen to it this afternoon if you want it, ninemarks.org. Just go to ninemarks.org and type in John MacArthur, and you can find that interview that's probably 10, 15 years old now. But John said that he persevered over the long haul, and now he's seeing when a pastor stays years longer, decades longer, than he should have stayed uh, from just human wisdom. I wonder if the San Gabriel Valley here, there are too many of the churches with the same kind of careerism in the pastors. So Rocky, are you in it with this church for the long haul? 20 years, 30 years, or more? Or are you figuring on sort of moving up the ladder by taking a, a bigger church in five or 10 years in a location that you like better for some reason? Are you building a congregation or a career? Stay with them. Keep teaching. Keep modeling. Keep leading keep loving. I'm not saying that it's never right to leave one church and go to another. I'm merely saying that such moves should be more unusual than they are these days. That's number one, time. Number two, eternity. As pastors, one day we will all be held accountable by God for the way we have led and fed his lambs. All our ways are before him. He will know if we use the congregation simply to build our own career. He will know if we led them or left them prematurely for our own convenience and benefit. He will know if we drove his sheep too hard. Shepherd the flock in a way you will not be ashamed of on the day of the Lord. Colossians 3, verse 23. Do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. And a third sub-point here, success. So time, 
eternity, and a godly perspective on success. Brothers and sisters, be very careful here. If you come to define success in terms of size, your desire for numerical growth will probably outrun your fidelity to biblical methods. Rocky, should you fall to this temptation? Either your ministry among the people will be cut short because you'll be fired, or you will resort to methods that will draw a crowd without preaching the real gospel. You will trip over the hurdle of your own ambitions. Southern California already has enough megachurches. You don't need to try to do that again. If you define success, though, in terms of faithfulness, then you're in a position to persevere because you are released from the demand of immediately observable results. You are freed to faithfulness for the gospel's message and its methods, leaving the numbers that respond to the Lord. It seems ironic at first, but I think trading in size for faithfulness as the yardstick for success is often the path to legitimate numerical growth. Confidence in the Christian ministry doesn't come from personal competence or charisma or experience. It doesn't come from having the right programs in place or or jumping on the bandwagon of the latest fad in ministry. It doesn't even come from having a degree from Master's Seminary or a successful career in football. Much like Joshua, our confidence is to be in the presence and power and promises of God. I remember a few years ago preaching from uh, the book of Numbers. I was preaching through Numbers. And if you know the book, it's a, it's a troubling book in what it includes in the history of God's people after it brings them out of slavery. And I was preaching from verses, our chapters 13 and 14. And this is the story of the spies that go into the promised land and then they come back out. And you remember the report they give? That's where the, the problem came. The advance party goes into Canaan and, and comes back and reports that they, the Israelites, are not strong enough to take the Canaanites. Now, what's wrong with that report? Friends, the Israelites had not been strong enough to get themselves out of Egypt a year earlier. That was never God's plan. God's plan was to pick weak people and do mighty things through them by his strength. He didn't pick strong people so that the strong people get the credit. He deliberately picked a tiny nation to defeat the largest Egyptian nation in order that the praise would go to him. It would be the same way with the Canaanites. God is the one who delivered them from Egypt. God is the one who would deliver them the promised land. He is the one who was strong enough to get them out of Egypt, and it would be in the same way not relying on the Israelites' petty strength to take the promised land from the lecherous, debased, idolatrous, but strong Canaanites. No, God was always planning to do that, using them, yes, but with Him giving them the victory. The the irony is, is deep there in Numbers 14 at the end of the chapter, or Numbers 14, verse 27. Numbers 14, 27. How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. This is his response to those spies giving out their faithless message like we can't take it. Don't go in. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore I would give 
to make you dwell except Caleb the son of Jephthah and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring in and they shall know the land that you have rejected. God would take the very children that they were using as an excuse for not going in and he would take them and he would take the promised land with them to show how completely he was the one who was responsible for their success. Brothers and sisters, confidence for becoming and being a pastor comes from depending on the power of the Spirit to make us adequate through the equipping ministry of Christ's Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves uh, to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. How does the Spirit make us adequate? What instrument does He use? God's Word. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The one thing necessary is the power of God's Word. That's why preaching and prayer will always be paramount, no matter what fad is popular among churches or ministers at any given time. Stake your ministry on the power of God's Word. Success is faithfulness in these simple matters. It is staying focused on these in the world of competing priorities. Whether the church is six years old or 60 years old, we must be patient. So in summary, preach, pray, love, stay. Preach, pray, love, personal discipling relationships, stay. Now I've spent most of my time talking to Rocky and the other pastors But for the other members here, you all are given a special stewardship. And I want to say a word to you simply about caring for Rocky. And I want to say this in three small sub-points. About money, about marriage, and about moderation. Money, marriage, and moderation. First about money. You look there in 1 Peter chapter 5. I wonder if you notice that phrase in verse 2, not for shameful gain. Not for shameful gain. If you ever get a pastor that you can keep by what you pay him, you deserve that pastor. Brothers and sisters, you want a pastor who's there because he feels called by God. You want a pastor there because he is faithful to the Word of God in his ministry. Galatians 6.6 instructs you to share all good things with your primary instructor in God's Word. Realize that Rocky's prospering as being your pastor is not being forbidden by what Peter says here in 1 Peter 5, 2 about shameful gain. I know that some pastors are absolutely abusive of their congregations, but I got to tell you from what I know of Pastor Rocky that he's never going to ask you for a second private jet. And that's just, it's not going to happen. So the brother may have problems. I don't think that's one of them. 
Uh, there are other ways he could have made more money if that's what he wanted to spend his life doing. Seriously, church, pray and act so that Rocky and Charla's dear children will have nothing but good things to say about the way the church treated their father. Can I share with you one thing that the congregation on Capitol Hill has done so well for Connie and me? They have been generous to us. 1 Timothy 5, 8 tells us that anyone who does not care for his immediate family is worse than an infidel, an unbeliever. Care well for your pastor in line with your ability. Entrust him with all you can and watch his model of being a faithful steward. You will not regret the culture of generosity that that inspires throughout the membership of the church. Second about marriage. One of the main ways that you can care for Rocky is to care for his family. If Satan wants to take a pastor out, he merely needs to aim at his wife. Because while you can get another pastor, Rocky is Charlotte's only husband. He's taken vows before God to care uniquely for Charlotte. So you, church, want to care for your pastor's family. You let Charlotte do whatever she wants. If she, if she wants to be a part of the welcome team, that's fine. But if for a season she needs to not do that, you need to realize that she is called fundamentally not to support Evergreen, but to support Rocky and her family. That's her first call. She actually best supports the church by supporting her husband as the main pastor. Sharla loves you best by loving Rocky best. And the last word with you is this, be moderate. Be moderate in your expectations of your pastor, as gifted as he may be. Let me share with you words of one faithful pastor back in the 1700s in New Jersey. He had labored for decades with the congregation, and it was the Sunday they were handing over to the new young man who was to take his place. And at that meeting, this pastor said the following words, for your own sake and your children's sake, cherish and revere him whom you have chosen to be your pastor. Already he loves you, and he will soon loves you, love you as bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. It will be equally your duty and your interest to make his labors as pleasant to him as possible. Do not demand too much. Do not require visits too frequent. Should he spend in this way half of the time, which some demand, he must wholly neglect his studies, if not sink early under the burden. Do not report to him all the unkind things which may be said against him, nor frequently in his presence allude to opposition, if opposition should arise. Though he is a minister of Christ, consider that he has the feelings of a man. Friends, Rocky's shoulders are broad. His bench press may still be impressive. But there is enough sin in any congregation to break the strongest pastor's spirit, if not sustained by God's own spirit and the congregation's wise kindness. Moderate your expectations of your pastor. Shift your dependency to God in prayer. Now, I've spoken for quite a while now, and you've been very patient with the visiting pastor. Who knows what they're going to do when they visit, what they're going to preach like. Preaching, praying, 
personal discipling, and patience. One day, before the American Revolution, there was a day of remarkable gloom and darkness and eclipse over the New England states, known for years afterwards simply as the dark day, a day when the light of the sun and the moon were extinguished slowly as if by an eclipse. The legislature of Connecticut was in session, and its members saw this unexpected and unaccountable darkness coming on, and they they shared in the general terror and awe. And it was supposed by many that this was the last day, the day of judgment had come upon them. And someone in in the consternation of the hour moved that they adjourn. And then there arose an old Puritan legislator, Mr. Davenport of Stamford. And he said that if the last day had come, he desired to be found in his place doing his duty. So he moved, therefore, that candles be brought in so the house could continue its work. There was a quietness in that man's mind the quietness of heavenly wisdom and inflexible willingness to obey present duty. Rocky, you and I should do our duty in all things, like the old Puritan. You cannot do more. You should never wish to do less. The ministry has private discouragements and public disappointments aplenty. In God's kindness, too, it often has compensating benefits in this life. But we will never be faithful ministers in anything other than appearance if we only consider the ministry in terms of this life. I love the quotation of John Brown in a letter of paternal counsels to one of his pupils newly ordained over a small congregation. Brown, the older minister and teacher, wrote to the younger minister, who just took charge of a small church. And he said, I know the vanity of your heart, that you will feel mortified that your congregation is very small in comparison with those of your brothers around you. But assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Christ at his judgment seat, you will think you have had enough We must remember what momentous work we're about, to whom we really finally give account. Praise God for how he has used Evergreen Baptist Church's life in its first century. Uh, I pray that this witness will last and burn bright for Christ here, here in this church and beyond through the pastorate of our brother Rocky and those who may come after him in this role until Christ returns to claim his own. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we pray that you would glorify yourself in this congregation. We pray that your word would be faithfully preached here, that sinners here would find conviction and hope in Christ. Convert many to your glory. Lord, use this church, we pray for your honor and the good of all. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.